Well, we've got some family business that we need to take care of today after service. And uh, so in preparation for that, we're going to uh, take the time here this morning to uh, talk about the subject of capital crimes. And the title for today's message then is this, Seven Misconceptions, Seven Misconceptions about capital crimes. Seven misconceptions about capital crimes. Seven misconceptions about capital crimes. And so that's what I'm going to give to you is seven different ways that people think about capital crimes that are that are not correct. It's not correct thinking. And so uh, this, in the hopes of... Uh, uh, weeding out some of those areas in your thinking that uh, are still not where they need to be biblically as it re- relates to this particular subject. So here's the first uh, misconception. People can... Uh, oh, let me go ahead and pray. Sorry. <laughs> uh, Lord, thank you for the time that we've had already. <clears throat> and we look forward to any time that we can spend in your word because we know that that really is most important. The most important thing that we do on Sunday mornings is hear from you. And uh, Lord, I pray that we would see the time that we're taking now is just that, the time when we, we hear from you and that we would see it as important, as what is needed if we're going to be the kind of people who are pleasing to you in this life, if we're the kind of people who are advancing your kingdom in this world, and if we are going to be the kind of people who make it to heaven. So, Father, I pray that you would impress the things now from your word that we are going to discuss and discover upon our hearts in that way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So here is the first of those uh, misconceptions. People can accidentally stumble into capital crimes. People can accidentally stumble into capital crimes. I've heard that over the years, or the language that uh, people sometimes use, usually those who are the guilty party, that a capital crime is something you just, uh, you can at least at times just stumble into. That it's something that can be, uh, in some respect, accidental. Uh, Oops, I didn't mean to do that, but too late. Uh, That is never the case when it comes to capital crimes. Uh, No one is ever uh, a victim According to James, uh, it is quite the opposite. So if you would turn to James uh, chapter 1. James uh, chapter 1. This is a text, uh, the text we're going to look at specifically is James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. And uh, this is a text that is actually dealing uh, with, uh, I believe, a capital crime. And... uh, That has taken me some years to to, to realize that, but uh, in closer study of this text over the years, I've really come to appreciate, especially within the context and what's going on here in the book, uh, that that is indeed uh, what he is uh, addressing 
uh, in these verses. He is dealing with uh, the issue of a capital crime. More specifically, uh, what goes on in the heart and actions of those uh, who commit them. And uh, where it becomes really explicit that he is indeed uh, speaking about capital crimes is at the end of verse 15 when he says, sin, when it is fully grown, uh, brings forth death. And the death that he's speaking about there is, uh, is spiritual uh, death, spiritual death. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and uh, start in verse 13. We'll read through 15 and then I'll, I'll do some more unpacking as it relates to uh, this subject of capital crimes. Notice verse 13, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Uh, As I've already said, these verses uh, reveal what is going on Uh, in the heart of a person uh, who is committing a capital crime, what is going on in their heart and what what really is driving then uh, their actions in that direction. And what James uh, communicates to us uh, in these verses is that a capital crime uh, is the same as those who are guilty of committing first-degree murder. Uh, And the question then would be, of course, how? Well, in two ways. Here's the first. Uh, Because sinful desire in the heart was not repented of, but instead retained, the person is tempted or attracted, or the terms that he uses uh, also, lured and enticed to opportunities or situations where the crime can be carried out. And that, if you were to look at what defines a, a capital crime? Uh, this is a part of it. A person having a strong desire or attraction to move in the direction or to look for opportunities in the direction of carrying out that particular crime. And uh, this is what's told to us then, uh, what I just uh, uh, communicated to you, uh, is given to us in verses 13 and 14. So again, going back into that text now, uh, notice verse 13, let no one say uh, when he is uh, tempted. This word tempted here is in contrast uh, to what we're told uh, up in uh, verse 2 when he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face or you meet trials of various kinds. Trials versus temptation in this particular epistle here in chapter 1 are in contrast to each other. Trials refers to uh, temptation in relation to minor sin. What James is now speaking of, different word entirely in verse 13, when he uses this word tempted, is temptation to major sins, i.e. capital crimes. Hence the reason he says, let no one say when he is tempted. Tempted to serious crime or serious sin, capital in nature type crimes or sins. Let no one say when that is the case, I am being tempted by God. For God, for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts. In other words, tempts in that way towards those kinds of sins, no one. And this uh, temptation uh, 
is the result of sin, he tells us in the very next verse, retained versus repented of. Look at verse 14 again. But each person is tempted, meaning, again, tempted to serious sin, capital in nature, when he is lured and enticed. He is attracted by his own desire. And here's this idea of sin retained versus repented of. That sin is there, uh, the, 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 the thoughts of sinful things or doing sinful things is there in the desire and it's there because it hasn't been repented of. It instead has been retained. They're holding on to those thoughts, uh, which then uh, makes them a prime target for opportunities where it can be carried out. Uh, which brings us then to uh, really the, the second way this lines up with the idea of first-degree murder. Upon finding an opportunity or situation, the person conceives a plan and carries out or gives birth to the sin. And that's what we see in verse 15. Then desire, this desire uh, for that particular sin that has been retained rather than repented of in the mind, in the heart, when it has conceived, meaning conceived the plan, gives birth to sin, to sin now in the action. So uh, here again, two things. Attraction, being lured and enticed because of a strong desire in relation to opportunities or situations where it can be carried out. Secondly, then, upon finding that opportunity or situation, the person now conceives of a plan and carries it out. Hence the reason the punishment for such crimes is so severe. There the end of uh, verse 15 again. And sin, when it is fully grown, apotaleo is the term in Greek, literally, when it is finished, when it has been carried out, brings forth the judgment of, the punishment of, death. Death. And again, uh, the death that uh, James has in mind here is spiritual in nature. Spiritual in nature. In other words, this act, this particular crime, this capital crime, is not accidental or a moment of passion. Rather, it is premeditated and deliberate. Hence the reason James ends uh, with the warning in verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. In other words, do not trick yourself into thinking that this kind of sin is something you could have stumbled into. It's very deliberate. It's conceived or planned because of sin in the heart retained rather than repented of. So again, all capital crimes, like first-degree murder, are deliberate and premeditated. The fact that all capital crimes are treated the same, no matter the manifestation, also tells us that God sees them as possessing the same cause, a heart that is still not fully submitted to the Lordship of Christ. If you're holding on to sin that ultimately leads you to be attracted to those things by which you might carry that sin out, then you are a person who has not fully given your heart or life to Christ. 
And, and that's why uh, it's to be treated all the same. The punishment is the same. Death, spiritual death, because it's, it's the manifestation, no matter what it looks like, uh, it doesn't matter. It's all coming from the same place. That kind of a heart, a heart that is resistant to that very thing. Something that uh, we've said around here for a long time. If you're not all in, you're not in at all. Well, you are that kind of a person. You're a person who is still not in all the way. You're not all in. Number two, another misconception as it relates to capital crimes. The first, again, being people can accidentally stumble into them. Uh, That's not true. The second is this. God continuing to bless me. God continuing to bless me after I commit a capital crime. God continuing to bless me after I commit a capital crime. God continuing to bless me after I commit a capital crime. God continuing to bless me after I commit a capital crime. Must mean, must mean, He has already forgiven me. God continuing to bless me after I commit a capital crime must mean that He has already forgiven me. Must mean that He has already forgiven me. And I therefore don't need to confess it and serve justice. And I therefore don't need to confess it and serve justice. God continuing to bless me after I commit a capital crime must mean that he has already forgiven me and I therefore don't need to confess it and serve justice. must mean that he has already forgiven me and I therefore don't need to confess it and serve justice. That's happened a couple of times here in this congregation where those who have committed capital crimes have said something uh, along those lines. They said, well, I, I did it and uh, I didn't come forward immediately about it, but, you know, things, things were good and things continued to be good uh, in my life. And so uh, I began to think that maybe God's just, uh, he's forgiven me and uh, I, I don't need to, to go forward. I don't need to confess it and serve justice. It's all good with God. Well, uh, that is a, a major misconception. Uh, and here's why. Any kindness God shows us after we sin is meant to lead to our repentance. Any uh, kindness is meant to lead to our repentance. And if we don't repent, then it becomes the basis for God producing more wrath kind of a reverse transaction. God, God, uh, God says, uh, here's kindness. You know what you've done. And I'm being kind to you. And that kindness is, uh, is, uh, is, is, is to lead you to, to doing that very thing, to confessing and serving justice. If you don't, here's what's going to happen. That's going to be now, because you didn't repent, I'm going to make that additional wrath against you. It becomes the basis uh, for that uh, very thing, for producing more wrath. Where am I getting this from? Well, Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. Listen to what Paul writes. Do you suppose, O man, 
you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? And see, there's that mindset, right? If I'm thinking this way, I've deluded myself into thinking I'm somehow uh, going to escape the judgment of God. I've even heard people say that are in these situations, uh, once it comes to light, I I actually started to believe that maybe if I just went the rest of my life being faithful, God would somehow, uh, he would would somehow take it off the, the, the record. And here you have exactly what Paul is addressing here. Do you suppose, O man, that you will escape the judgment of God? Because that's essentially what you're doing. You think you can escape it. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? How are you presuming on it? Not knowing that the kindness of God, notice, is meant to lead you to repentance. That kindness, that forbearance, that patience, which has allowed you to continue uh, having good things or life continues to be good even though you've done this, you have grossly misinterpreted. You are looking at that and you are assuming that that means everything must be okay between you and God and that you have, again going back to verse 3, you have escaped the judgment of God. And Paul says that's a serious, Serious error. You, 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 you thought wrong. Instead, it's just the opposite. God's done that. All of the kindness, all of the forbearance, all of the patience is meant, notice, there it is in the text, is meant to lead you to repentance. But, verse 5, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are instead storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Notice, he will render to each one according to his works. And so there's that, uh, that, that reverse transaction. All of that kindness, all that forbearance. God says, look, if, if you do the right thing with this, it, it'll pay off. But if you turn around and you, you, you get the wrong idea and you think, well, uh, I must have escaped the judgment... God's not going to put it to my account. I don't have to serve justice, and so I'm just going to keep quiet about it. I'm just going to keep suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, which is where this whole thing starts, by the way, back in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, where he says, why is God so angry? And he says the reason why is because men do that very thing. They suppress the truth of what God does in unrighteousness. And this is one such example of how they do it. By presuming upon God, by thinking that, oh, well, I, I, I did it, uh, but, but, but things are going good in my life. Well, that must mean that God is, is good with me. And he says, when you do that, when you do that, God reverses it. Now all of that kindness that he showed you that didn't lead to your repentance becomes uh, additional wrath for the day of wrath. You are storing up, literally, you are heaping up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. It's going to be worse. Even worse. Longer you wait, even worse. Even worse. This idea, again, uh, is all the more shows the power of deceitfulness in the heart or the deceitfulness of sin that Hebrews 13 uh, talks about. Taken or led astray by the deceitfulness of of sin. Thinking you are okay with God. 
That doesn't come from the truth. When you have committed a capital crime, that comes from the deceitfulness of sin. You are not okay. You will not escape the judgment. You're instead heaping up wrath unto the day of wrath. Grossly, again, misinterpreted the data. So again, uh, God continuing to bless me after I commit a capital crime must mean that he has already forgiven me and I therefore don't need to confess it and serve justice. Wrong. Very, very, very wrong. Number three. I can never be punished for a capital crime. I can never be punished for a capital crime. I can never be punished for a capital crime. I can never be punished for a capital crime. I can never be punished for a capital crime. If I didn't know, if I didn't know, If I didn't know that what I was doing, that what I was doing, that what I was doing was one. That what I was doing was one. I can never be punished for a capital crime if I didn't know that what I was doing was one. If I didn't know that what I was doing was one. I could never be punished for a capital crime if I didn't know that what I was doing was one. Again, this is something that I've heard uh, through the years. People will say, well, I didn't know it was a capital crime. And uh, so doesn't that mean that um, I can't be punished for it as a capital crime? Nope. The only time uh, that ever holds true is when it cannot be proven that you should have known that what you were doing was sin. Let me say it again. The only time that ever holds true, that you won't be punished for that, punished, period, Capital crime or not. The only time that will ever, ever hold true is when it cannot be proven. And uh, the burden of proof is on us, the courts or the church, is that it cannot be proven that you should have known that that particular action was sin. That's the only time uh, you doing a, a, a capital crime hypothetically, uh, would not be punished, was that it was, it cannot be proven that you didn't know, forget that you didn't know it was a capital crime, you didn't even know that it was sin, and, and it cannot be proven that you should have known that it was sin, that it was wrong. That's why when people say that, the first question we ask them, did you know it was wrong? They say, well, I didn't know that was a capital crime. We say, did you know it was wrong? So you don't get a license to do evil as long as it's not a capital crime. Some people have actually, uh, have actually uh, thought that way. 
It's like, well, as long as it's not, they got this kind of weird thing, uh, and, 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 and hopefully you're, you're not one of these people. If you are, you need to change that. This idea of it's like, well, if I don't commit any capital crimes, as long as I don't do that, I'll go to heaven. If you practice sin, you're going to hell, no matter if it's capital or not. And if you play that game, you're like, well, it's a capital crime or not. When you come in and you say, oh, I didn't know that was a capital crime. Did you know it was wrong? Did you know it was sin? You say, oh, I didn't know it was sin. Well, uh, if we can prove that you should have known that it was sin because of its uh, repeated and explicit teaching in the body of Christ, if we can prove that, then you've got no excuse. You've got no excuse. Which means you will be punished according to what the sin requires, irrespective of whether you knew the sin was capital or not. You see, at that point where we might say phase two, You've committed the crime, and now according to Deuteronomy 19.21, we need to give the punishment that fits the crime. And if it's capital, then that's what you're getting. Excommunication. Right? Knowing, therefore, that what you are doing was capital in nature is not necessary to being charged with such a crime. Let me just say that again. Knowing, therefore, that what you were doing was capital in nature is not necessary to be in charge of the crime. What matters is that you knew or should have known it was sin, and you did it anyway. Now let me show you this from Scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Verses 5 and 6, this is actually what Paul's talking about here. Uh, when we read, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. He says, we're teaching you what God's word says and we're teaching you uh, what it says in relation to obedience. How, what obedience looks like uh, to Christ, uh, which means then also uh, we're teaching you uh, what is disobedience to Christ, what is wrong what's prohibited, right? As well as what's prescribed. And we're destroying every lofty opinion. That means uh, empty thoughts, literally. Opinions about what is right and wrong. He says we're destroying that because that doesn't matter. It's what God says that matters. We're destroying all of that kind of talk and we're making sure that you understand exactly what it is that Christ requires of you. Notice then in verse 6. Being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So that comes again right after verse 5. We destroy uh, arguments and every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. We're teaching you exactly what that means, what exactly that looks like to obey Christ. And once we're done with that, we are ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. You know what he's saying there? He's saying, once we, once we know that you know or that you should know, now you're responsible for what you do. In other words, you can no longer use the excuse, oh, I didn't know that was sin. You know why? Something we've said around here for a long time as well. Revelation establishes obligation. 
And that's exactly what Paul's teaching right here, beloved. He's saying just that. We, once we've done that, once we've taken the time repeatedly and openly teaching you what it is that God says, you are no longer without excuse. Which means we will punish violations, disobedience, where we find it. And so uh, here Paul, uh, talking about just what we're talking about now, or applying to this, uh, this misconception, uh, I can never be punished for a capital crime if I didn't know that what I was doing was one. If you did know or should have known that it was sin, uh, then you will be punished. Such individuals must be viewed and punished as, and this is Paul's word, uh, disobedient or uh, those who are practicing disobedience. Number four, the fourth misconception associated with capital crimes, I can't be charged with obstruction. I can't be charged with obstruction. I can't be charged with obstruction if I didn't know I committed a capital crime. I can't be charged with obstruction if I didn't know I committed if I didn't know I committed a capital crime. I can't be charged with obstruction if I didn't know what I committed was a capital crime. This is very similar to point three, the, the, the previous point. A person's ignorance in not knowing that the sin they committed was capital in nature will also mean facing obstruction charges in cases where the sin was a capital crime and the time for confessing it has lapsed. Why? Why is that the case? Well, because it is my obligation to immediately seek and find out the justice that God requires in his word and through his church. Isn't that Deuteronomy 16.20? You are to seek justice. Justice and only justice you shall seek. Not your justice. God's justice. You are to determine what it is that he requires of you and what's been required in his word and through his church. And so at the moment that you're guilty of a particular sin, uh, you don't take matters into your own hands and assume that you understand. You instead, you make sure, according to uh, what has been established in his word, God's word, and through his church. Such persons are therefore not guilty of obstruction due to ignorance, but as before, negligence. They neglected to seek out God's justice and instead replaced it with their own. Let me give you an example of one that I heard. Well, I, I knew that what I committed was a sin, but because I didn't know it was a capital crime, I just confessed it and I went to the table and got it cleansed. Who told you to do that? Did God tell you to do that? Well, no, I just thought that that's a... That's how it should be handled. Oh, so you did what was right in your own eyes. Isn't that what we just read in Judges today? Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what they thought was just. Is, is that how we do things? If that's the case, then you don't have Jesus as your king. 
your king. You're the boss. You're, you're the one determining what justice is. Hence the reason uh, we have uh, multiple places uh, in Scripture uh, condemning this kind of practice. Deuteronomy 12, uh, verse 8 is where we first uh, see this, uh, this idea of doing what is right in your own eyes. God says, don't you dare do it. Instead, uh, verse 28, so 12, 8, uh, don't do what is right in your own eyes, but instead, verse 28, be careful to obey all that I have commanded. And then, of course, what we saw in Judges today, 17, 6, we see it again repeated in 18, 1, 19, 1, and then finally 21, 25. And in each of those uh, places, uh, it's being painted in a negative light. People doing what is right in their own eyes is bad, not good. So the moment that uh, I'm guilty of sin, I need to make sure that I do what God says is required to serve justice. Not me. It doesn't get you off the hook to say, well, I, that's just what I thought I was, all I had to do because I didn't know it was a capital crime. Well, why didn't you seek that out? Since when is presumption or assumption okay? Well, I just assumed. Is that what we're called to do? Are you going to stand there before God on that day and be like, well, I just assumed. He's like, I gave you a book. Was it not thick enough? Is that the problem? The answers are here in the church. Why didn't you go and figure it out? As a matter of fact, and this is a positive, uh, lots of people do that. I get calls all the time with people saying, hey, this has happened. I want to make sure that I'm doing the right thing. And, uh, and, and we get it figured out according to God's word. We get it figured out. Instead of, well, I just assumed... Well, that's uh, uh, you. You again are in serious error if you think you're uh, you're not going to get an obstruction charge once the time has elapsed and, or elapsed, and, and that's usually the case. You're like, oh well, I I would have if I would have known. Well, whose responsibility is it to know? Yours. It's always yours. Uh, this, by the way, is uh, this is a part of our. Uh, a part of our JUCO policy, I have it uh, here uh, as part of my footnotes. And, and by the way, if you want a, a copy of this, I'd be glad to get it to you. But this is from our policy on obstruction of justice under Enhancers 1.2.1. Uh, it, it literally reads this, and I quote, The burden of knowing what the church has identified as sin, as well as what God requires to serve justice in relation to that sin, falls upon the congregation, never the courts. A person cannot therefore excuse the charge of obstruction due to ignorance in such situations. And so, uh, just following in line with what we're talking about right now, and our responsibility to seek justice. And so again, another misconception. I can't be charged with obstruction if I didn't know I committed a capital crime. That is incredibly false. Number five. It is okay. It is okay to cry about those who are excommunicated or apostate. It is okay to cry about those who are excommunicated or apostate. No, it's not okay. Well, they're my kid. Still doesn't make it okay. They're my spouse. Still doesn't make it okay. We are not to feel sorry for those guilty of capital crimes or ourselves when we are not the victim. Feeling sorry for ourselves is also letting your eye pity. 
And this is uh, going back to what were commanded in Deuteronomy 19.13 and Deuteronomy 19.21. You're crying over somebody who's uh, committed a capital crime, and I say, why are you crying for them? And you say, oh, I'm not crying for them, I'm crying for myself. Were you the victim? Directly the victim. Don't say, well, because I'm their mother or whatever, I'm now a victim. You're not a victim. Unless the sin was directed at you, you're not a victim. What you're crying about is, is you're having pity on yourself. And uh, you may remember this, you may not, but uh, when we looked at this, uh, or when we uh, discussed this passage, Leviticus 10, verses 1 through 6, uh, we discussed this very thing, that the idea of pity, your eye pitying, refers to yourself as well. You are not to feel sorry for them, which is what that idea of pity means. You are not to feel sorry for them, and you're not to feel sorry for yourself. And the perfect proof of that uh, is why we talked about it in Leviticus 10, 1 through 6, which is about Aaron in relation to his two boys, Nadab and Abihu. Do you remember what God said? God said, don't you dare mourn. Don't you dare cry. Don't you dare let your hair hang down. Don't you dare mourn for the death of your boys who died literally for committing capital crimes. Don't do it. If Aaron couldn't cry for his boys, how dare you cry for yours? Your eye shall not pity. Again, uh, this is actually coming, uh, this is in the footnotes, but from, from practicum. And uh, so here, uh, you know this, no excuse. Uh, this is coming from the practicum notes on Leviticus 10, verses 1 through 6. A person or family's calamity or death, spiritual or physical, which is the direct result and divine punishment for their sin, is never an excuse for sadness or mourning in relation to them. And that was what was concluded as the, the point or the lesson or the principle or the precept uh, that is uh, established by that particular account of God uh, prohibiting Aaron from crying in that situation. It is not okay to cry about those who are excommunicated or apostate. Number six, we have no commitment to the excommunicated. We have no commitment to the excommunicated. We have no commitment. We have no commitment to the excommunicated. And see here now, we, we're swinging the, uh, the pendulum too far the other way. You say, well, I, I don't cry, I don't, I don't pity those people, so away with them. I'm done with them. Uh, that's also wrong. That's not what the Bible teaches. We are, to, uh, we are to be committed to helping those excommunicated be restored. This means, uh, this means continuing to love them. They need us now more than ever. And I want to show you this from Galatians chapter uh, 6. We'll pop into to 5 just briefly, but Galatians chapter 6. <clears throat> Actually, we'll start in 5. Uh, Paul starts with our obligation to, uh, to, to punish those who are guilty. Verse 10, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and those who are troubling you will bear the penalty. I have confidence you'll do that. You'll see that they, they bear the penalty. That's what God uh, calls us to do. But notice uh, what else he calls us to be committed to as it relates to these individuals. Brothers, 
If anyone is caught in any transgression, it doesn't matter uh, who it is, it doesn't matter the nature of the transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness or peace. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. How do we bear each other's burdens? Well, according to the context, we do it through the work of restoring. And the work of restoring is not just on the day that they're restored, we restore them. He's talking about our involvement in their lives in getting them to that place. And notice what he calls it. He calls it uh, fulfilling, or he identifies it rather, as fulfilling the law of Christ. What should that tell you about this work? What should that tell you about your commitment? It should tell you this, that Jesus is happy when people are restored. Jesus is happy with his people. It is the law of Christ. It is what Christ wants us, his church, to do. To bear that burden. To get people to the place of restoration. I've heard people uh, say at times that uh, because... People have gone under discipline, especially people that they looked up to, uh, that uh, they now have trust issues. Do you understand that when you say you have trust issues, uh, and, and this is in any context, that really what you're saying is, is you no longer want to be committed to people and you're using the excuse of their failure as your reason for doing that. So it's sin on your part. The idea of thinking that you need to trust people to be committed to them is not at all in any way, shape, or form biblical. Never in the Bible does the Bible ever say that the condition for being committed to the body of Christ is the condition of trust. Here's what God says about trust. You trust and obey him, which includes his command to be committed to one another. Period. You got it? This has never been about the trust we have for one another as somehow the condition for our commitment to one another. Whether we do good or whether we do bad, that commitment remains intact. And as far as your obedience is concerned, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, as it relates to the, uh, the issue of uh, uh, restoration, uh, Paul picks that up as well uh, there. Uh, in 2 Timothy chapter, or excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, here speaking about the man that was put out in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, says this, For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, restore him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Obedient how? In doing the work of restoration and being committed to those individuals to the end. And don't give me this stuff about trust. Never in the Bible again is trust ever the issue. Trust issues is really an issue with you. You're just looking for an excuse to not have to be committed to those that God's calling you to be committed to. And so again, uh, misconception, we have no commitment uh, to the excommunicated. Uh, we have all kinds of commitment to them. They need us again more than ever. Finally, the final point, and uh, this uh, misconception, I don't know that I've ever heard anyone say this per se. Actually, I do. Someone actually one time uh, did say something along these lines to me. Let me give it to you and then I'll explain more. If too many people become guilty of capital crimes... If too many people become guilty of capital crimes, 
we can or should consider making things easier. If too many people become guilty of capital crimes, if too many people become guilty of capital crimes, if too many people become guilty of capital crimes, we can or should, we can or should consider making things easier. Consider making things easier. There's been at least one person in my past that uh, has actually directly told me something very similar to this. Uh, years ago, uh, I received a phone call and that individual said to me, well, I'm just thinking here, I don't know, maybe, maybe we need to back off some of this. Well, uh, our job, uh, if you didn't know this, is not to make things easier, but once more to seek and serve justice. Uh, Jesus, according to Jesus, it's false teachers and false churches who are concerned with making things easier. Where am I getting it from? Well, at Matthew 7, you should know the text. At Matthew chapter 7, uh, verses 13 and 14, where he contrasts uh, the narrow way uh, with another way known as the accommodating way. Uh, he says this, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide or accommodating, and the way, notice, is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many for the gate that is for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few too many people okay uh, where does the many line up in this passage with the good gate or the bad gate Oh, the word many is used in relation to the path that leads to destruction. Probably ain't concerned so much about the many. Not that we only want a few people getting into heaven, but again, it don't matter. It doesn't seem like it mattered to Jesus either. As a matter of fact, Jesus, again, is telling us the easy way, those who are trying to make things easier, that's a sure sign that you're on the wrong path and in the wrong church. This isn't about making things easier. Consider how God handled the first generation under Moses. Only two families, Caleb's and Joshua's families, only two families are allowed to go into the promised land. Two. You think God's concerned about making things easier? Well, for the evangelicals it's that way because God supposedly made things hard for the first 4,000 years and then he got counseling somewhere in between the old and the new and he decided that he'd make it a lot easier by just beating the crap out of his son and then making no law for those who follow him after that. Is that what the Bible teaches? Was God concerned, truly concerned back then? Is he concerned now, the same God, today, yesterday, and forever? Think God's like, well, you got to slow down this. I wasn't expecting this many people to commit capital crimes. We might have to rethink this. God doesn't call his church to practice situational ethics. You know what that is? Situational ethics is this. Circumstances can change how or what we practice as law. Here's what God says. Numbers 15, verse 16. One law and one rule shall be for you. And you combine that with Matthew 5.18 until heaven and earth pass away. Not one jot or tittle of that same law shall pass away. We're not here to make things easier, guys. We're here to be faithful and to seek justice and to glorify our King. That's what it's about. And if only two families make it, to God be the glory.
We're going to do it his way. Because this is his church. He's the king. We don't do whatever we want or whatever we think is right in our own eyes. We do what he said. Because he is king. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you've given us time to, to revisit these things. And I, and I hope in this time that uh, we've, we've shored up some of the, the gross misconceptions that, uh, that people can have as it relates to uh, capital crimes. And Father, I pray that you would use this to uh, enter then into our time uh, where we talk about disciplinary issues that people would keep in mind what it is that they've learned here, that we might glorify you in our responses and uh, the things that we decide together. Make it so, we pray, in Jesus, our King and Savior's name. Amen.